As we finish up our series, Questioning Christianity, the text that we are going to study is Acts 17, verse 16 to 34. So I'll read the text and then we'll talk about it. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them said, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone, by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some, people, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is God's word. So as we finish up our series, Questioning Christianity, it's important for us to remember why we did this series in the first place. Because there are a couple temptations that you can come to when you find out answers to a skeptic's question. One of those temptations is to use those answers like weapons against them, right? A skeptic comes to you and you can use your answer to show them how they're foolish and don't know everything you know. We can't fall into that temptation. On the other hand, the temptation that I'm more likely to fall into personally is to take these answers, log them away in my brain, and slink back into my private Christianity, knowing that I'm right, and maybe feeling a little bit better about myself because of it, but not actually helping anyone. We can't fall into that temptation either. We said we were going to do this series because we needed shields. Shields against the attacks of skeptical people so that like a shield protects in order to use your sword, we would have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. And so for the last two weeks, we're going to talk about how to share the gospel with people. And we're going to do that from what I think is the most important text in the Bible for understanding how to speak to a culture like ours. 
And because there's so much in this text, we're going to spend two weeks going through it. So it's from the book of Acts, and if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it's the story of the first couple decades of the Christian church after Jesus rose from the dead. It's authored by the uh, man who wrote the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, Luke. In fact, on this day in the church's year, they actually celebrate the festival of St. Luke. Um, We're not celebrating it ourselves today, but the historic church would celebrate it today. Luke's point in writing the book of Acts was to show how the Christian church uh, expanded from a small group group of Jewish men to the entire world. And so he tracks it through the book. And one of the best ways to see that tracking, that expansion, is by juxtaposing Acts 2 and Acts 17. Acts 2, chapter 2, right at the beginning of the book, maybe you remember, is the story of Pentecost, right? It's 50 days after Jesus has risen from the dead. All of his followers are together hiding because they're afraid of the people who killed Jesus might come and kill them. Until the Holy Spirit comes powerfully on them and gives them the ability to speak in languages that they had not previously known in order that they would go outside and preach the, new, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah to the, one of the largest groups of Jews who were gathered at any time in the year in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. And those people believed. 3,000 were added to that, their number that day. That's what the book of Acts tells us in chapter 2. But there are some unique things about that preaching engagement that the Apostle Peter had. The first of those is that his audience was completely Jewish, and it was in Jerusalem. I don't know how much public speaking all of you do, but as a public speaker, I think about this a lot. Uh, I'm speaking to a group that is very diverse in many ways. I have some old people, some young people, people from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, people who have been Christians their whole life, people who have barely been Christians for five minutes. Um, I have to be very conscious of that when I speak so that I'm not speaking over anyone's head or below anyone's ability to understand. But when you have a very monolithic group of people to speak to, you can be very specific in your applications, right? So if I was speaking to just a group of teenage boys, or if I was just speaking to a group of rich Christians, or I was just speaking, speaking to a group of elderly women, I could be very specific in my applications. And Peter could also. He was speaking to a monolithic group of people. Another thing that was unique about this preaching engagement was that his audience was very biblically literate. Uh, they knew the Old Testament. All of them there were Old Testament Christians, right? They follow what the Old Testament had said about the practices of the worship life. And so Peter took advantage of that. In his sermon, he quotes the prophet Joel and the Psalms to show them these scriptures that you know, that you have been studying, that you believe in, they point to this guy, Jesus, who came and fulfilled it all. So you should believe in him. And another thing that he had going for him is that group was very religious. They were already there for a religious festival. He didn't have to convince them that God existed or that practicing a religion might be a good thing. They were already in that train of thought, and so he could just sort of urge them down the line a little bit further. But now compare that to Acts 17, the message that you heard the Apostle Paul preach at the Areopagus. His culture that he was speaking to was not monolithic. It was the Athenian culture, which was multicultural. You heard the Athenians and all the foreigners who were there would gather together to talk about ideas. He was by no means speaking to a group that was monolithic. And he was speaking to a group that was biblically ignorant. Maybe they had read the Bible, but they had read it like they read Aesop's fables, right? It's a good story. Maybe he has some moral truths, but we're not that concerned with its veracity. 
and he was speaking to a group that was spiritual but not religious. They had all sorts of gods, and they would do all sorts of worship practices, but they weren't in the business of being exclusive about their religious practices. They would go wherever they went or wherever they needed to go for whatever they needed at whatever time. They would call this pluralism, right? Any sort of religious path is pretty good as long as it does something good for you. So my question for you is, which of these is more like our culture today? I hope you would say the second, Acts 17, right? We live in a very multicultural, mostly biblically ignorant, and pretty spiritual but not religious culture. I think you could make a case that previously in our nation's history, we were an Acts 2 type culture. While we were always a multicultural area, it was definitely less vast in the differences that people have between their cultures. And for the most part, you could have counted on people to know biblical characters like Paul or Peter or Noah or these sorts of people. And and you could probably count on most people going to some form of religious gathering during their week. But like we studied last week, that, that's, not, that's not happening anymore. We live in a pluralistic, spiritual but not religious, biblically ignorant, multicultural society. And so if we're going to understand how to speak to this culture, we need to understand what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And so I, like I said, we're going to take two weeks to go through this. And so today is probably going to be less of a typical sermon and more of what you might think of as like a Bible study. But uh, if we connect it with what I'm going to talk about next week, it'll all be one big thing. So I hope you're here for both weeks. Um, the big picture that we're going to go through is first this week, we're going to talk about Paul's method. So we're going to talk about where, why, when, how, those sorts of things. And then next week, we'll talk about what actually comes out of his mouth, the actual words that he says. So the method today is where we're going. And we'll take on the text a verse at a time. I will start at verse 16. It says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So the first thing we learn from Paul's method is to identify the idols. David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address at Kenyon College in 2005. And in 2015... Time Magazine called his commencement address the greatest commencement address of all time. It's pretty high praise. They said that because what David Foster Wallace uncovered in his commencement address was something profound. Everybody worships. I'll let him say it for himself. He says, here's something that's weird but true in the day-to-day trenches of adult life. There's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. 
They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever fully being fully aware that that's what you're doing. You understand what he's saying? Everybody worships. Everybody lives for something. Everybody wakes up in the morning and has something that, their li- that gives their life purpose and drive. In the Athenian culture, there were all sorts of gods. Little statues that you could buy. You could put them in little shrines in your house and worship them. They were gods like Artemis or Aphrodite or Cronos, Apollo or Hermes. You maybe have heard some of these names. That's probably what Paul was referring to. He saw all the idols, the worship places of the people. We might be tempted to think that, well, we're not like that. (laughs) We don't have little shrines in our basement where we worship little statues. Sure, but we still worship. We maybe don't call them Artemis, Aphrodite, or Kronos. We call them things like fertility, or love, or time, or science, sports, or wealth. We maybe don't have little, ta- little statues to represent these things, but these things we still wake up and try to live for. And in fact, those gods that the Greeks and the Romans had, they stood for these things. That's why people worshiped them. It should make you think about your own life, especially if you call yourself a Christian. Because you claim to worship Jesus, right? But I think if every one of us would look at our lives, we'd realize there are all sorts of idols in our lives. Why do you get up and go to work in the morning? Do you do it for Jesus? Or do you do it for someone else? Or something else? When you love your spouse, do you love them for Jesus? When you think about how to spend your money, do you think about how to spend your money for Jesus? When you think about where to live, do you think about where to live for Jesus? I think very often we have another motivation, something else that's driving us, something else that we're worshiping, and we're hoping Jesus will get in line with it. But it's also important for us to understand this as we speak to a culture, not just for ourselves to repent of our own idolatry and turn to Jesus, but to realize that the culture has these idols also. And that if we're going to convert people, if we're going to get them to understand that Jesus is who they should worship, we have to first deconvert them. You have to deconvert someone before you can convert them. And before you think this is sort of like drink the Kool-Aid culty sort of speak, uh, just realize that everyone does this. Everyone changes their mind like this. They need to be deconverted in order to convert. Human beings are just amazingly stubborn creatures, right? We need to be overwhelmingly shown that the way that we're living is not working for us in order to be motivated to change. We call it something like living in denial, right? I'm sure every one of us could think of something in our life where we know what the right thing is to do. We know how to get there. We have the capability of doing it, but we just won't do it, right? It's living in denial. We need to be deconverted from the way that we think in order to convert to another way of thinking. And so what we need to do is exactly what David Foster Wallace said. Help people see that they're not atheists. They're not just spiritual. They're worshiping something, and that something is going to chew them up, spit them out, and leave them with nothing. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have enough love. You'll never have enough acknowledgement. You'll never have enough power. All of it is going to go away. And so first, we identify the idols. The text continues. So he, it's Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's second 
piece of advice to us is to go to the marketplace. Uh, the word that is translated from Greek into English as marketplace is the Greek word agora. You might know the word agoraphobia. Agoraphobia can mean a number of different things, but most often it's the fear of large crowded spaces. The agora was exactly that. It was a large crowded space. But before you think that it was like a marketplace in the sense of just buying and selling like fresh produce, uh, it was far bigger than that. Because this was a culture with no internet, no Google, no Amazon, no delivery, no grocery pickup, uh, no, no way of communicating other than actually speaking to each other's faces. And so if you wanted to get anything done in that society, you had to come to the marketplace. The marketplace was your Google and your Amazon and your Facebook and your hairdresser and your gymnasium and your favorite grocery store and your sporting events all in the same place. It was where you had to go. And Paul says to go there. He went to the place where everyone was, where ideas were being exchanged, where people were talking to people so that he could share this message. Historically, people have tried to control religion in one of three ways. And when I say religion, I, I don't just mean Christianity. I mean religion in general. People have tried to control religion in one of three ways. Those three ways are litigation, condemnation, and privatization. So litigation is pretty obvious, right? They make it illegal to practice your faith. Condemnation would be like, you're not, it's not illegal for you to practice your faith, but as a culture, we're going to speak down to that and say, that's not, that's not a good thing to practice or you're stupid for practicing that, etc. Privatization, though, is it's not illegal to practice your faith, but keep it to yourself. Don't talk about it at work. Don't talk about it at the gym. Don't talk about it anywhere besides in your house. You do what you want to do behind your closed doors, but when you come out to vote or to speak in the public square, don't bring your faith along. And obviously these overlap. You can look at many cultures in the history of the world and see that they're doing one or multiple of these to try to control the influence of religion. My question for you is this, which of these three can we as Christians control? The last one, right? We can't control what they make illegal or not illegal. And we can't control what other people say about what we practice, but we can control whether we listen when they say, keep it to yourself. Keep your faith out of the public square. There's some temptations in a privatizing culture, a culture like ours in many ways, that says you can have your faith, but keep it to yourself. One of those temptations is passive compliance. They say, keep it to yourself, and we say, okay. And it's kind of the temptation, I think, of younger Christians a little bit more. They tend to be a little bit more concerned about their image and tend to be a little bit more open to multiple voices of input. But we can't fall into that temptation. The other temptation, of course, is defiant disengagement. To say, this culture has gone to hell and we're not going to watch their movies and not going to listen to their music and we're going to say these people are all, you know, they're all lost and and not engage with them at all. And this tends to be the temptation of older Christians who are a little bit more set in their ways and have also seen a culture maybe deteriorate over a couple decades. But we can't fall into either of these because Paul tells us to go to the marketplace to politely engage with our culture. I mean, think about how the text said it. He said he reasoned with them. What's reasoning? It's a conversation, right? It's not me driving my thoughts into your brain. It's me asking a question or presenting an idea and then discussing that idea. 
Paul reasoned with this culture. He went and politely engaged them. He didn't defiantly disengage from them and said, you're all lost. And he didn't passively comply and say, fine, I'll just practice my faith by myself. My question for us is, is our faith in the marketplace? There are multiple marketplaces, of course, but is our faith there? Or are we tempted to privatize it? Keep it to ourselves and say, that's what I practice, but you do you. God calls us to something better than that. Uh, if we don't remember that, if we, uh, if we want to privatize our faith, I, I would suggest that we remember what Jesus said. He said, everyone who denies me on, here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. I think in many ways, we've drunk the Kool-Aid of privatization. But God calls us to something better. Text continues. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul's third method is to speak a unique message. And we could make a big deal about the Epicureans and the Stoics. We probably talk a lot about their philosophy, uh, but just as sort of a, a primer on them. Epicurean philosophy was essentially that you would live for pleasure in this world. They thought there's no afterlife, you have this world, so live it to the full. Do whatever you need to do to make yourself happy. On the other hand, the Stoics would be, they would be uh, concerned with what comes after this life. In fact, they would say this life is full of a lot of suffering and there's an afterlife to come, so endure this life. Live with honor, live for the good of society so that we can all get to this afterlife place. And whether they believed in a Christian afterlife, afterlife or some other type of afterlife, that was essentially the Stoic position. Now, it's obviously not a one-to-one -one comparison, but I think you can see already in these philosophies, what we would consider maybe typical liberal or conservative thought too, right? I'm not saying necessarily politics, just the way you think. The interesting thing about both the Epicureans and the Stoics, though, is neither of them like Paul's message. <laughs> They're both ticked off. They, they say this babbler is trying to say stuff about foreign gods, and what is that about? And that's because the Apostle Paul was speaking about the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. It's a unique message. It's a message that stands opposed to every common way that people think. On the one hand, it stands against those who would say that this life is all there is, live for pleasure. There is another life that is coming, and you should live for that life because that life is eternal and far greater. But on the other hand, it would say this life is not just to be endured. In fact, Jesus came into this world and died for this world, and he's going to restore this world for us so that we can have a new heaven, a brand new, perfect, in every way, heaven and earth. And so it stands completely opposed to both ways of thinking. That unique message that the Apostle Paul preaches is the type of message that we ought to preach. But I think often Christianity falls into the trap of forgetting that the resurrection is our unique message. I mean, think about it, if you were to share your faith today, talk about your faith with somebody, what kind of words would you use to describe it? Probably words like love, forgiveness, maybe you talk about heaven. But how many of us would talk about the resurrection? I fear far too few. And yet the resurrection is the thing. It is the beating heart of Christianity. It is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians is the linchpin on whether Christianity is true or false. Either Jesus is not alive and the whole thing is a joke and Christians should be the, least and the most pitied of all people, or Jesus rose from the dead and he's the Messiah. That's it. And so Paul preaches that message 
And yes, some people think it's ridiculous. But you saw at the end of the text, some people believed it and were saved. The text continues. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about ideas and listening to the latest ideas. The fourth thing that Paul's method teaches us is don't preach a sermon. The Areopagus was the gathering of the highly intellectual people of Athens. It was what we would maybe think of as like an ancient TED Talk. You know what TED Talks are? TED is a an acronym. It stands for Technology, Education, and Design. And the TED organization puts together these conferences where they have really smart people come up and they stand and speak for less than 20 minutes about whatever is their area of expertise. That was essentially what the Areopagus was, and that's where Paul went. And when he went there, he didn't preach a sermon. He didn't do what the Apostle Peter did. He didn't quote the scripture. He didn't expect them to understand Old Testament Christianity. He gave them a TED Talk. A clear, concise, understandable for the layman speech about what Christianity is. Paul's going into that pluralistic society and presenting the idea of Christianity to people who are not ready to hear it, probably don't know how to listen to it, and aren't asking for it. And yet he's successful doing it. Don't preach a sermon. Hard for me to say as a guy who preaches a sermon every week. And I love the fact that many of you will sometimes share my sermons uh, because you think that the content that I'm presenting is worth people to listen to. Um, but if we're going to reach a culture like ours, sermons are not going to be the way to do it. Frankly, the, the non-Christian, the skeptic, the atheist does not want to hear a sermon, is not expecting a sermon, and I would contend probably doesn't really even know how to listen to a sermon because they don't have the background knowledge necessary. I remember what we talked about with Acts 2 and Acts 17. One thing I can guarantee about most of the people who come to my church every Sunday is that they're Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here or you're listening online, we're so thankful for that. Um, but the truth is most of the people here are Christians. And so I can assume a certain level of biblical knowledge. But if we're speaking with somebody who doesn't have that biblical knowledge, a sermon's probably not the right, where to, right place to go for them. They're not expecting it, they don't want it, and they probably don't know how to listen to it. So I'm asking you, do you have your TED Talk prepared? Your way of sharing the faith that is understandable for a person who's not a Christian is clear, concise, and ready to go at a moment's notice? If you don't, you have a couple things working in your favor. First of all, next week we're going to study Paul's TED Talk, and we're going to see everything that he says, and we're going to pull out everything that he's trying to communicate. So you'll probably get something from that. But secondly, you have me. My job is to help you set up your TED Talk. And so I'd be glad to buy you a coffee or buy you whatever you drink, sit down and talk about how you share your faith, sharpen you, give you the common objections that people would give so that I can help you preach the gospel to people who don't understand it, aren't expecting it, and maybe even don't want it, and show in a winsome way the beauty of the gospel message. The last thing then that we learn from Paul's me method is to connect eternal truth to cultural authority. It's kind of a mouthful, but I'll explain it to you. Um, when Paul gets up, he doesn't just say, this is what the Bible says, right? 
He actually quotes two philosophers of that day, and both of those quotes are found in verse 28 of the text. He says, For in him we live and move and have our being. That was a quote from the Greek philosopher Epimenides. And the second thing that he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, was a quote from a Stoic philosopher named Aratus. And why does Paul do that? Because he's trying to connect eternal truth to cultural authority. Those Athenians sitting in the Areopagus don't care what the Bible says, but they know Aratus and they know Epimenides, and they know that those guys are well-respected for their ability to think through the way the world is. Now, hopefully you see me do this in my preaching. I actually already did it when I quoted David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace is not a Christian. In fact, he committed suicide three years after his Kenyan College address because he gave up hope on life. But I've done this throughout this series, right? I quoted Bill Nye, and I quoted C.S. Lewis, and I quoted Alfred Adersheim, because I want you to understand that obviously the Bible has authority, but we have cultural authority that attests to the Christian faith, and the Christian faith makes what they say even more fully, completely true. David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, says everybody worships something. The Bible says the same thing, but then gives you an answer. and says, worship this thing that will never let you down. Worship this thing that will constantly fill you up. Worship this thing that promises you eternal life, not temporary happiness. So we connect eternal truth to, uh, excuse me, to connect eternal truth to cultural authority. Uh, but if you're worried that you don't have a whole bunch of quotes like floating around in your brain to bring out when you're talking to your non-Christian friends, that's okay. You don't have to have quotes. You just need to be able to connect something that most people assume to be true and to something that is true in Christianity. So I'll give you a couple examples of this. Um, for example, the majority of people would say that they believe the world is a product of evolution, right? Molecules to man over billions of years. Most people would say they believe that. That's kind of a cultural authority. But we would also say that we believe in the equality of all people. And our culture would say that if people are being oppressed or marginalized, that that's not okay. The problem is those two thoughts can't exist together, right? Because if we are the product of evolution, of molecules to man, of survival of the fittest, strong eat the weak for our entire uh, existence, then why isn't it that when black people get killed by police officers, they're just the weak being eaten by the strong? Or when women don't have the same advantages as men, why aren't they just the weak that are being taken advantage by the strong? That's just evolution. That's just how it works. Christianity gives you an answer, of course, right? the infinite value of all human beings, regardless of gender or ethnic background, because they were not involved, but they were created. Here's another one. Uh, scientists would say that the sun is running out of energy. And in a couple billion years or so, it's going to run out of energy, and then there's going to be no sustainable energy source for life on this planet. And so life will just cease to exist. Which means that no matter what you do, this side of your death, it doesn't matter. You can cure cancer, and you can achieve world peace, and you can stop climate change, and you can do all sorts of crazy things. You could be that guy or that girl. And it won't matter. Because it's all going to go away anyways, and no one's going to be here to remember anything that you did, and so it really doesn't matter in the end. But none of us feel that way, do we? We all feel like there's some purpose to my life, something I'm living for. Well, that's because Christianity says you were made for something. You were made to live for your creator, and you were made to live forever, and you will if you believe in Jesus. There's another one. If you go to school, you can, in one classroom, be told that you are a cosmic accident. 
as Bertrand Russell said, a random collocation, collocation of molecules. You are just an accident of evolutionary processes. But in the next classroom, your psychology classroom, you can be told you need to have more self-esteem. How do those two things sit next to each other? In one way, being told you're a cosmic accident and telling you that you need to have more value of yourself. Or how about uh, modern people believing that freedom is the highest good, except for everyone else? We want the freedom to do whatever we want to do, but I don't know one free person who doesn't want other people to do what they're doing. We want freedom for ourselves, but not for everyone else. We want everyone else to adjust to ours, us and our freedom. Or how about people who criticize religious people for blindly believing things that they can't see, and yet they believe things from scientists that they have never met and tests they have never seen and test results they've never read. Or how modern Western people claim there's no absolute truth, which is a self-refuting claim, because therefore then the only absolute truth is that there is no absolute truth, which doesn't make sense. Or another example of how people's first reaction to judgmental people is to judge them. We're inconsistent. And though we want to live by the desires of our flesh, there is something bigger that we have been called to, and not just called to live up to, but been given freely by Jesus. That's what your Christian faith offers you. And so have those things. Have those tools in your toolbox to connect eternal truth to, um, to cultural authority. Now, I could keep going on with examples, but I want to finish with this. Um, in 1999, a wonderful movie was made by the Wachowski brothers. Maybe you know which movie I'm talking about. It was called The Matrix. If you're younger than me, maybe you've never seen The Matrix, maybe only on syndication. But if you're older than me, I'm sure you're at le you've at least interacted with this movie at once. Excuse me. The premise of the movie is, I'll just read the Wikipedia premise, actually. Uh, the premise of the movie is that in the early 21st century, there was a war between humans and intelligent machines. When the humans blocked the machines' access to solar energy, the machines harvested humans' bioelectric power, keeping them pacified in the Matrix, which was a shared simulated reality modeled after the world as it existed at the end of the 20th century. The machines had taken over the world. The city of Zion is the last refuge of free humans, and Morpheus and his crew are a group of rebels who hack into the Matrix to unplug enslaved humans and recruit them. In other words, there was a real world that machines ran, and they took humans and they would plug them into a computer program that in their brains simulated life as it was always supposed to be at the end of the 20th century. But only when people were unplugged from the computer could they realize what the real world was like and that there was a real battle going on in that real world between man and machine. In many ways, the movie The Matrix is exactly like what we are trying to help people understand. That we're plugged in. We're plugged into a world that we just take for granted. This is just the way that it is. But there is something real, something deeper going on behind it. And so we, like Morpheus and his group of rebels, can plug ourselves into that culture to understand it, to be in it, in order to help people unplug from it and realize there's something bigger and better for them in the Christian faith. Uh, whether you like the Matrix or not, I'd ask you to do this. Love your culture. God was purposeful when he, made, when he uh, bore you into this world at this time in the world's history in this place on this planet. 
He knows you, he knows your skills, he knows your relationships, and he's purposely placed you in places to make a difference, to help people see what the Christian faith has. So use the questions and reach out to them in those five ways that I've talked about. And next week, we'll talk about the message so you can arm yourself with the words to say. But for now, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us the example of the Apostle Paul in Athens. As he speaks to a pluralistic, spiritual but not religious culture, we ask that you would teach us also to speak to that type of culture because it's the culture we live in. We ask that you give us bravery to go to the marketplace, give us patience and empathy and compassion for people who are living plugged into the world that Satan wants them to see. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us unplug them from that world so they can see the world that is true, the world that lasts forever in you. Amen.